Okay, welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. This week on the show, we have Peter Bruckner, a specialist sports and exercise physician with a special interest in nutrition. Peter is a founding partner of Olympic Park Sports Medicine Center in Melbourne and professor of sports medicine at La Trobe University. A founding executive member of the Australasian College of Sports Physicians, he served two terms as president and played a key role in establishing sports medicine as a medical speciality in Australia. Peter is also the co-author of Wiley's textbook, Clinical Sports Medicine, and has been a team physician for professional football clubs, as well as national athletes in swimming, soccer, men's hockey, and including Olympic and Commonwealth Games. Peter was the Socceroos team doctor at the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, head of sports medicine and sports science at Liverpool Football Club from 2010-2012, and Australian cricket team doctor from 2012-2017. Before we start episode 49, the Prepare Like a Pro podcast mission is to empower uh, athletes and aspiring staff with practical knowledge knowledge from some of the industry's most inspiring individuals to, and to strengthen the AFL community. If you like the show, please show your support by subscribing to our podcast. We're on iTunes, YouTube and Spotify. Thanks, Peter. Welcome aboard, mate. Here is Morning. Okay. Yeah. How are you going? Yeah, well. yep. pretty good. <clears throat> there's, uh, there's a bit of knowledge in the background there behind you. Oh, it's just for sure. Oh, yeah, they're actually empty books just to, uh, just to impress people. <laughs> well played. I've just got a blank wall. I should have followed suit. I'll note that one down. <laughs> yeah, an old trick. <laughs> well, uh, let's let's start at the beginning, mate. When did you discover a passion for, for sports medicine? Um, well, I guess sport was always my big thing as a kid. Um, you know, and when I was growing up, I was either, you know, playing sport or watching sport or reading about sport. You know, uh, I don't know why, really, because my parents were quite normal. Um, but uh, I just had this sort of uh, passion for, for sport. And, you know, I used to race out and get the newspaper and read the sports pages, and you know, uh, back in the day. Um, and I, in fact, I always I remember thinking when I was a kid that, you know, I'd know when I'd finally grown up is when I started reading the front page of the paper before the back page. But uh, hasn't happened yet. But, uh, you know, maybe it will one day. But um, anyway. Um, so that. yeah, always loved sport. Uh, I actually wanted to be a, uh, a sports commentator. That was my real, uh, the real thing I wanted to be when I left school. But uh, my mother decided that wasn't a really uh, acceptable uh, uh, profession. So she convinced me to do medicine, and um, then I finished up being a uh, you know boundary line commentator about thirty years later, which was my revenge on my on my mother. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, yeah so. I played a lot of sport as a kid. I mean, I wasn't fantastic at anything. I was a reasonable cricketer. Um, you know, played everything, you know, swimming and tennis and not a great footballer at school, but turned out to be okay when I left school. Um, so then I went and did, uh, did medicine at Melbourne Uni. Um, didn't have a really illustrious uh, academic career, I have to say. Uh, I was far more interested in uh, playing footy and, and running the footy club at, uh, at Melbourne Uni, Uni Blues. So I got very involved there and I'm still involved there 50 years later. Um, but I scraped through uh, medicine and did all right in the end. And um, then uh, I still really wasn't sure what I wanted to do medicine-wise. Sports medicine didn't really exist in those days. I mean, it was just, just starting, I guess, when I finished medicine. The first sort of uh, clinics were starting to open up a few years later. So I went off to England for three years. Uh, worked over there, um, mainly watch sport. You know, I'd sort of uh, work for six months and then go off and, you know, watch uh, the Olympics or uh, the European the Euros or something like that and just watch a whole heap of sport over there. Loved it. Um, came back. And as I said, sports medicine didn't really exist then, certainly not as a specialty, and there was really no one doing it full time. So I started off in general practice um, down in McKinnon in Melbourne. And then we, uh, you know, I got a bit more involved in sport. People, you know, soon the word gets around, you're interested in sport and so on. So I did a little sports medicine course and we set up a little sports medicine clinic sort of as an adjunct to our general practice. Um, 
And then uh, um, what happened then? Oh, then I basically got my, my sort of breakthrough in sports medicine, I guess, through my involvement with university footy. Um, I got a call one day from the head of the, the sports uh, union at Melbourne Uni, um, inviting me to be the uh, the team doctor of the Australian team for the World Student Games, which wow. were being held in uh, Edmonton. This was 1983. Uh, and they'd never taken a doctor before, but um, they decided they wanted to take a doctor. They knew, you know, the fact that I'd been so involved in uni sport and so on got me the gig. And um, uh, I was really excited. And they said, well, the bad news is you have to pay your own way. <laughs> and uh, that was great. You know? and, it's a holiday, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a holiday. And, and, you know, we just got married and bought a house and, you know, had no money. And, and you know, I went home and said to my wife you know is this great just well well we can't afford to go yeah. <laughs> so hang on a minute <laughs> and i convinced her that was a uh, you know an investment in my career i think was the term i uh, i used and well, um, yeah yeah and uh and, and that really sort of uh got me started i guess you know yeah sometimes you just need a bit of a break and, and then once you get your break you know then it's up to you then to, to make the most of it so did that, did another one two years later um, in Kobe, Japan, then a third one in, in Zagreb uh, two years after that. And then, you know, you meet people on these trips and so I, then I got a gig with the Australian swimming team and did that for a while and, and, and so on. Um, and then I had an opportunity to uh, to tender for a, a new sports medicine clinic in uh, in Melbourne at mm-hmm. Olympic Park. So Olympic Park at that stage had sort of dreams, I think, of being the sort of Melbourne AIS really. They were... Uh, you know, get to set up this uh, amazing place with a sports medicine centre and accommodation, all that sort of stuff. Anyway, the accommodation never happened, but the sports medicine centre did. And uh, we got a group of people together and we won that tender. And um, I was still in general practice at that stage, so I decided, well, I'd give it a crack for six months full time in sports medicine. And if it didn't work, then I'd, you know, always had my general practice to go back to. And, you know, I was delivering babies and doing all sorts of things in, in general practice. But um, in fact, I, I realized I couldn't keep delivering the babies one day. And um, I started working for Melbourne Football Club at this stage as their team doctor. And I remember I got called for delivery when I was on the bench at Windy Hill and in Essendon. And the delivery was in Moorabbin. <laughs> I thought, no, no, I can't do both of these. So that was a defining moment. That was the end of my obstetric career and the start of my sports medicine career. So, um, yeah, so we started the clinic. What did you uh, uh, <laughs> No, I think the Baby got born, and you know, not like most uh, things, they do very well, even if you're not there. So uh, somebody sorted it out anyway. But uh, um, but more importantly, we won. Uh, we beat Essen in that day. Anyway, that's by the way. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I sort of uh, um, yeah. So so pretty much at the same time. <clears throat> Started this clinic at Olympic Park, which was a, a multidisciplinary clinic, you know, doctors, physios, uh, massage, psych, uh, nutrition, pretty much everything. And um, <clears throat> and then got the gig at, at Melbourne Football Club as their, as their club doctor. And uh, in those days, you know, uh, it was you know five o'clock training on Tuesday night and five o'clock on Thursday night and we played at two o'clock on Saturday. You know, it was uh, it was the old days. You, everyone, the players all worked or studied or something and they came in after work and, uh, you know, um, started training. So it was very much like a, you know, like an amateur footy club really yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, very different. So I was able to basically work full time and and do the uh, and do the footy club. Um, and, and is that so, that role? Were you doing very similar? Uh, was your role look very similar at Melbourne Uni? You said you were involved there. Were you involved in the medicine side, or was it more? The, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. both both the medicine side, um, but also I was president of the of the Uni Blues for a long time and, and very involved off the field as well. So did a right. bit of both uh, initially, and then uh, you know more recently, probably more in the medical side. But um, yeah, so I'd done, uh, I'd done, you know, I knew footy and I knew my way around a football club and uh, and so on. So uh, yeah, so that was a that was a great timing. Um, 
I'd like to say it's not coincidence, but uh, no one else would agree with me that uh, when I started at Melbourne, I hadn't made the finals for 23 years. And uh, this was 1987. And uh, yeah. it was the great Robbie Flowers last season. And there was this big campaign of, you know, he'd never played in the finals. He played, you know, 15 years, something like that, never played a final. There was this big campaign to, you know, get Robbie into the finals. And, uh, and, uh, the call came down to the last round, and we had to win out at uh, at Western Oval at uh, Britain Oval, and about two other results had to go our way, and it all sort of happened, and then uh, yeah, all of a sudden we made the finals, and um, it was funny. I'd always sort of joked, you know, oh, what happens if we make the finals and Robbie Flower breaks his leg? Well, we came off the ground, and uh, that was the day that Gary Lyon broke his leg, actually. But um, we came off the ground, and uh, Robbie Flower came up to me and said, "Doc, doc," and I took me into the room, and he busted his finger. And he had a, you know, quite a nasty uh, fracture in his finger. I thought, oh, you're kidding me, you know. Anyway, we, we jabbed him up and, uh, and got him through the, uh, the next three weeks of finals. But, uh, yeah, that was a, a pretty amazing year of, uh, of football. That was the year that Jimmy Steins ran over the mark in the preliminary final and we lost uh, a yes, couple, of, couple of points, very famous uh, final series where we won our first two games by about 100 points and then that, that day came. And, yeah, we missed our chance, which was very sad. But, um, yeah, silly bloody... Irishman, anyway. Um, but, mm. uh, yeah, it was a great time. I mean, you know, people like Jimmy Steins and Gary Lyon were playing and, uh, yeah, it was a very exciting time to be involved at Melbourne. And I did four years there. We made the finals every year. Oh, fantastic. The, uh, great run. I made, made the grand final the next year. And uh, uh, so I was involved in a record-breaking grand final. Unfortunately, it was the record-breaking uh, margin, lo- losing margin, as we got absolutely flogged by... Uh, and a fantastic Hawthorne team, probably the best, I'd argue, probably the best team ever, really. Um, they just smashed us in the grand final. It was one of those grand finals, you know, after 10 minutes, you think, oh, God, I just want to go home. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, no. anyway, and then, uh, yeah, we should have won a premiership in those four years. Um, this was the John Northey era. Um, I really feel, you know, disappointed that we never won a premiership in that time, but uh, we went close, but uh, not quite not quite got there. So that was an exciting time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, so that was and really how I got started. Yeah, and so the passion for, for sport, like you mentioned, right, you know, as, as a kid playing and, and loving sport and being yeah. outdoors, what, what about the nutrition side of things? Because that's clearly a yeah, passion yeah. Of well, as well. Yeah, it was funny. I, I sort of had, had two waves of nutrition interest. Sort of a, way back then in, in the 1980s, I worked closely with Karen Inge, who's a, a very well-known dietitian. was probably the first AFL or VFL in those days dietitian, I think, with uh, – with Collingwood and then with Hawthorne. And um, so uh, Karen and I wrote a book called Food for Sport, which was sort of the first specialist sports nutrition, Australian sports nutrition book back in the mid-'80s. And then, to be honest, after that, I, I sort of lost a bit of interest in nutrition because it all became a bit boring. You know, it was all just sort of, uh, you know, Gatorade and Powerade and, and you know, carb loading and pasta parties and you know, things like that. So I sort of just put that on the back burner, if you like, for a long time until relatively recently where I've got more interested in not so much sports nutrition but just general nutrition right okay so more from a health fo- focus point yeah. of view and long- yeah. longevity yeah 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 that's my and, current and, sort of passion i guess and do you think there's um, an overlap there with health and, and prolonging an athlete's career in there yeah well i, I guess in you know, one thing that the, yeah one thing that disturbs me a little bit is that we had a whole generation of athletes who uh had massive amounts of, of carbohydrates and, and sugars and uh you know we encourage that and uh and that disturbs me a little bit of the long-term effect of that we we now know i think that uh you know it's not a good thing to have such high doses uh, and so on so uh not surprisingly, many of them are, are now insulin resistant and, and having uh, issues, you know, with uh, their cardiovascular systems and so on. So uh, hopefully this generation who are not quite as obsessed about uh, 
the higher levels of carbs will be will be much healthier in the in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. And is is that is is it that space that you've seen a significant amount of change over the last sort of 10, 20 uh, years in sport nutrition? Well, or yeah, look, it, it hasn't changed that much in sports nutrition, to be honest. Um, there's a, a bit of a move these days, isn't it, for uh, to try sort of, uh, especially in endurance sport, ultra endurance sport, to try um, you know the ketogenic or low carb, uh, healthy fat, high fat sort of uh, diets, um, mm-hmm. which I think are much healthier uh, in the general population, but uh, controversial in sport. Um, I think a lot of, uh, of AFL players now are sort of adopting this sort of a uh, you know, train low, compete high. Um, philosophy where they restrict their carbohydrates on uh, on non-training days and then on a heavy training day and match day they'll top up with some with some carbs so people are playing around I think with the right level of carbohydrates and which varies from person to person so I think that's a really interesting area at the moment as to what the what the best mix is of, of carbs and uh, and fats it's certainly not as simple as we used to think of just carbs carbs and more carbs but uh, yeah so I'm quite interested in that but as I said it's it's more from a general health point of view I <clears throat> I think that uh, we've really been giving people the wrong advice for a long time you know we've been so obsessed with fat and cholesterol and so on that we've lost sight of the fact that it's actually sugar and starches and uh, vegetable oils and so on that are the main problem so yeah i had a i had a sort of a, a moment myself about 10 years ago i suppose i was in retrospect sort of metabolically quite unwell uh, yep. i was quite i was obese i had uh, fatty liver i was in retrospect clearly pre-diabetic i had a family history of type 2 diabetes my father had developed it at that same age and uh i was not uh, not as healthy as a thought I probably thought I was and uh, I heard a bit about this low carb healthy fat diet from Tim Noakes as uh, a well-known sports scientist yep. who'd sort of uh, developed type 2 diabetes despite it being incredibly healthy and, and, a, and an athlete had run hundreds of marathons and things but um, he'd reversed his type 2 diabetes on this low carb diet and I thought wow you know I, I really look, need to look into this so I, I dived into it looked into it a lot and the more I could do uh, you know to avoid fat and, uh, and and you know substitute it with lots of carbohydrates and uh, I eventually decided I'd give it a crack myself so I did a three-month sort of little N equals one uh, experiment. Uh, we all know that N equals one is a waste of yep, time, yep. Except, when the, except when the one is you, in which case it's become very important. And um, so I Absolutely. did an N equals one experiment and uh, went low carb, stopped eating anything with sugar and any sort of starches and so on, and completely transformed my uh, my health. I lost 13 kilograms in 13 weeks. I uh, my fatty wow. liver that I'd had for 10 years disappeared. Uh, my insulin returned to normal. My triglycerides returned to normal. So basically, I I went from being pre diabetic to being absolutely normal and I've stayed that way for, for 10 for 10 years since so and felt great and had lots more energy and all that sort of stuff so that, that's the key you know, isn't it as well that how yeah. it is yeah so well kept it off and yeah I mean the fact that you know you feel so good it motivates you to keep going you know it's a yeah, it's a bit of an inconvenience you know you restrict certain foods and so on but to be honest, you know, you feel so good that you don't mind doing it really. And, and I haven't found it that difficult for the last 10 years. I've kept it, kept it going for 10 years now. And, um, so yeah, I feel good. And so when you, when you, you know, I guess when you discover something, not discover, I wasn't the first person to discover it by any means, but you know, when you come across something like that, you have two choices. You can either sort of keep it to yourself or, or I really felt that I had to sort of spread the word and, and tell people about this, uh, this program. And so I've really spent the last 10 years, uh, largely, I guess, uh, transitioning from my interest in sports medicine to one in uh, a, a more general nutrition, and uh, we started a uh, started a charity a few years ago called Sugar by Half to try and sort of campaign to reduce sugar. Wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Fat Lot of Good, and uh, yep. 
but most recently we've just uh, launched an app called Defeat Diabetes, which is like a res- carbohydrate restricted approach to to managing diabetes, and that's uh, that's really taken off uh, really well, and uh, yeah, it's exciting stuff. So I, I guess you know it's been a bit of a career change for me. I still have an involvement in sport, but uh, my main passion now, I guess, is uh, is trying to get people to uh, to eat better because I think you know we just as a as a country, you know, we're getting fatter and sicker, and uh, no one seems to be doing anything about it. So uh, I'm having a crack. Yeah, fantastic, mate. It's great work, and and for those listening that want to make a bit of a change, what, like you mentioned, the carbohydrate, sugary food. Uh, what what what, yeah, did, what did you substitute in for those foods? Well, you know, I, I basically stopped having uh, you know any sort of sugar or soft drinks or fruit juice. You know, like fruit juice. We're all told that one of the things that we've been told were healthy, like fruit juice and and uh, fruit yogurts and and muesli bars yeah. and so on, are full of full of sugar and, uh, and and lots of unhealthy stuff. So I've actually sort of went back probably to eating the way that my grandparents would have eaten. You know, sort yeah, of just yeah, yeah. basic healthy food. You know, sort of meat and fish and eggs and dairy. You know, eggs we've been told, oh, full of cholesterol, you can't have that. And dairy, oh, all that fat, you know. So I went back to basic, you know, eating real food again. And um, I avoid processed food. Um, try to avoid anything in a packet or a, or a, or a can. Mm-hmm. And, um, and just eat really well and the, the other thing is when you stop eating carbohydrates you stop being hungry and so I went from eating you know probably three meals and three snacks a day to eating twice a day which is what I do now and uh, never virtually never hungry and uh, yeah it's a much uh, healthier way and, and so particularly for people with type 2 diabetes or, or pre-diabetes I mean it's just common sense I mean diabetes is a disease of carbohydrate intolerance well you know my kids would say duh you know you just stop yeah. eating carbohydrates and uh, you know it's pretty simple really and yet the medical profession has been so obsessed with this fat thing, you know, which is based on a lot of uh, incorrect information, um, that we lost sight of the fact that uh, we've got to restrict carbohydrates. So that's really the, the line that we're pushing. And as I said, we've launched this app called Defeat Diabetes. And um, yeah, we know we want to try and uh, have an impact on, on the 2 million people in Australia with type 2 diabetes and the other 2 million who have pre-diabetes. So if they don't change things, well, Developed diabetes. So it's a massive Absolutely. problem in our society. I mean, type 2 diabetes, I think, is the biggest health problem in the country. And yet we're, uh, you know, and we've got a solution. Um, but unfortunately, you know, nobody makes any money out of that solution. So it's not a drug or a, or a surgery. It's just uh, eating properly. And that's not very sexy. Yeah. And so you mentioned the app. Defeat diabetes for those that haven't yep. downloaded it. What what does it entail? Is it um, yeah, it's it's a whole program. So yeah, it's yeah. yeah. There's a lot of education there. So it's basically we run through 13 steps where we provide a lot of information. So myself and Paul Mason, who's a sports physician, also a sports physician in Sydney, and Nicole Moore, a dietitian. We've uh, we spent the whole of last year in lockdown basically uh, developing this uh, this content. Um, so we've got 13 steps, each of which have videos, articles, uh, action plans, quizzes, and so on. So you go through that 13. So it gives you all the background information as well as the practical ways of, of, uh, of transitioning to a restricted carbohydrate diet. On top of that, we've got meal plans. We've got a whole bunch of really nice recipes. Uh, we've got cooking demonstrations because we believe that people don't know how to cook these days. Really simple sort of uh, stuff. So, yeah, it's um, it. It costs uh, $2 a week, so it's uh, $99 for the year, and uh, as well as getting what's in, all the stuff that's in the app, which is hours and hours of content, you get uh, weekly updates with uh, more videos and articles, and you become part of a a Facebook, uh, close Facebook group where we share ideas and recipes and uh, and stories and so on. So it's uh, very similar, yeah, similar programs have been uh, remarkably successful in the UK and the US. Uh, In the UK, there's a program that's uh, had over 400,000 people do their program and now uh, recognised by the NHS and 
And both of those programs basically have a 50% remission rate. So they 50% of the people who are on the program put their diabetes into remission. The other 50% get off insulin, reduce their medication, reduce weight and so on. And uh, we've just done a survey of our initial cohort from three months ago and uh, very similar results. They lost an average of seven kilograms in three months. They've all uh, 60%, 63% of them, I think, have uh, put their diabetes into remission, and the other, the remaining ones, are, are well on the way to doing so. So it's a very, you know, it's a very effective program. Uh, yeah. yeah. If you, you know, those of you who your audience is probably pretty young and doesn't have uh, type two diabetes, but we've all got parents and grandparents exactly. and, and friends who uh, who have that, and uh, you know, we're not making any money out of it. It's just to cover the money is just to cover. Incredibly expensive producing an app. I had no idea. But anyway, um, uh, <laughs> you know, so we're just trying to get our, our money back on fees and so on. But uh, yeah, basically, I just want to make a difference. And that's really what uh, what we're about. Fantastic. Yeah. And so going back to your career journey along the yeah. way, who, who are your um, strong influences? Did you have mentors? Like you mentioned, it, it's changed the sports medicine back then. Yeah. Yeah, look, to be honest, yeah, to be honest, I didn't really have a, have a mentor. I sort of, uh, and I guess as a result, I've sort of been very, very keen to, to mentor other people because, you know, there really wasn't anyone around, uh, in, in my day to sort of had done what, what I, you know, finished up doing. Um, mm. there was a lovely, uh, old guy called Fred Better who, uh, was a uh, very eccentric, uh, Polish, uh, doctor who uh, had started, uh, was in sports medicine and general practice. He was like a bit of a father figure to me, but from a career point of view, the interesting thing is that the thing that I, I really uh, discovered is that I learned most of my sports medicine from physios and uh, you know there's very much you know the medical that medical profession attitude is that we know everything and you know what would uh, the, you know the allied health people know and you know um, but I soon realized uh, that certainly back in those days and it's still true to a certain extent in that physios had a much better knowledge of, uh, of musculoskeletal uh, injuries and, and conditions than, than we did and um, I was fortunate enough to work with some great uh, some great physios uh, you know really uh, very very lucky and, and they taught me uh, they taught me so much um, you know people uh, people like Trish Ayers and Jane Berman initially and then uh, Mary Kinch Kate Crosley uh, Paul Coburn all these uh, people who are sort of household names in uh, in physio also learned a lot from uh, from myotherapist, uh, Rob Granter, I work with, uh, who's a very well-known person in the myotherapy world. He uh, had a fantastic understanding of, uh, of this sort of stuff. And so, you know, really, um, I... I just dived into you know all sorts of different areas to uh, to learn, not just the traditional uh, you know doctors and orthopedic surgeons and, and so on. And so uh, I think I you know had a, a fairly a very multidisciplinary approach to sports medicine, and uh, that's uh, I think you know the way sports medicine has gone really. Looking at the at the uh, multidisciplinary aspect, and our clinic was very was truly multidisciplinary. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of medicine gives you know it's a lip service to being multidisciplinary, but really you know the doctors are the big dogs and everyone else is second rate. Well, I you know that wasn't the yeah. case in our clinic and uh, we really worked together and respected each other and, uh, and learned from each other so I think that was the big thing for me um, I have a yep. you know I have a whole bunch of young doctors who start working at, uh, at at uni blues you know when they're first year out of medicine or second year out of medicine and uh, I give them three three instructions I said okay you've got to look after the concussion so you've got to learn Everything you know about concussion, you got to look after the sort of the serious injuries. You know, if there's a you know, significant injury, then or a, or a suturing or anything like that. And then the third instruction is the rest of the time just follow the physios around and listen to everything they say and do, and you'll learn all about sports medicine. And uh, and I think you know that served. Uh, We've had a whole bunch of those people go on to become sports physicians and AFL club doctors and so on. There's a, a number of the current AFL doctors came through Uni Blues. So, uh, you know, I think that's been a really good, uh, you know, a good way of learning from uh, from physios. And we have an osteopath there who I've learned a lot from. We have uh, 
you know, massage therapists and so on. So yeah, we can we can learn from uh, from everyone. Yeah, that's yeah, that's amazing message, and it's certainly something that's quite strong in sporting teams. But um, at Olympic Park, it, I guess you, you've adopted that philosophy of working together and having an integrated approach. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great, mate. And and what about the athlete worked with? Um, amongst Cricket Australia, Liverpool, what are some trends that you've noticed in young athletes um, that are successful, whether it be the mental side or physical? Yeah, well, look, I guess there are some common characteristics of, uh, of all the athletes that, that you work with. Um, you know, one is that they're, uh, they're resilient, both uh, physically and mentally. So, uh, you know, we've seen so many incredibly talented athletes. Um, that's just Bad luck, some of it's uh, bad management. Um, so, you know, I think um, the really good athletes you know, have incredible attention to detail. Uh, they'll, you know, they do, they just look at every possible way that they can improve their uh, their performance and uh, and go about it. So that might be uh, both the mental side and, and, and the physical side, whether that be extra training or extra treatment or, uh, you know, uh, Having a massage or doing a yoga or, or or whatever you know different uh, different things. So very single-minded um, about uh, about their success. Uh, there's not many that haven't worked hard. You know I can't think of too many athletes who uh, you know have been super successful who haven't had a great work ethic. Um, and that goes for, for you know all of us. So, you know whether it's physios, doctors, whatever. Really, you know I mean uh, you've got to uh, got to put in the put in the yards. Um, I guess the other thing is, is ability to cope with, with pressure. Um, you know, it, particularly at the elite level, I mean, uh, it, there's an enormous amount of, uh, of pressure on you and, and how you cope with that, that pressure, that expectation. Everything you do is sort of under the, under the eye of, you know, thousands of, if not millions of, uh, of people. And, uh, I guess the person I, I dealt with who had, who handled the pressure better than anyone, anyone else was probably Kathy Freeman. Uh, in Sydney, mm-hmm. um, I don't think anyone's been under as much pressure as her in the history of the Olympic Games, probably um, to uh, form. Uh, you know, she was the, the hometown favourite. You know, she was our probably our only genuine gold medal chance in the biggest uh, sport of the Olympics. You know, the whole Olympics have been sort of built up around around Kathy. It was all about Freeman Night. You know, you couldn't get tickets for Freeman Night. Everyone was having barbecues and this, and you know, enormous pressure on her the whole time. And, and just to ramp it up, you know, in case anyone didn't realise, uh, they uh, they got her to light the flame at the opening ceremony. And uh, you know, so yeah. you know, incredible incredible pressure. And um, and I don't think there are too many people in the world who would have coped with that uh, with that pressure. And uh, Kathy, uh, she had this amazing ability to sort of switch off. And I think people, you know, misinterpreted it. I don't know. I did initially too. That you know, she's oh, she's a bit vague, or she's not uh, not really with it some of the time. But that was just her way of uh, of coping with the with the pressure. And then she would sort of draw herself into her herself and her inner sort of circle of, of people, and uh, and just shut out the uh, the outside world and all the all the buzz and the crap that was going on about uh, about the Olympics. And the, you might remember the lead up. There was all this stuff about. You know, Parekh, the uh, the previous gold medal winner, coming and going, and it was just a circus. And um, yeah. and through that all, she just um, you know she just managed to to cope. And uh, you know, I remember I, I was actually uh, the manager of the track and field team at that stage. And um, one of my jobs was to meet the athletes when they finished and sort of usher them through media and you know all that sort of stuff. And so I actually sort of spent the, you know, the three or four hours after she won with with Kathy, uh, which was oh, an amazing experience, amazing, yeah. amazing yeah. experience. Yeah. But um, yeah, so yeah, we went through uh, you know through the media and then uh, then up to up to see her family and then we went up to have the, the interview with the famous interview with Bruce and um, and then uh, down to 
and drug testing and uh, and so on. And I reckon she said to me 15 times in that three or four hours, uh, ne- never once did she say, I'm so happy. Never once did she say, oh, this is the happiest moment of my life. This, this is fantastic. This is wonderful. Never once. She must have said 15 times. She said, God, Doc, I'm so relieved. Doc, it's such yeah, a relief. Yeah. And, you know, the I'm sure since then she's she's had, you know, plenty of time to enjoy it. But at the time, all that, uh, you know, and you remember when she finished, when she crossed the line, you know, most people sort of, you know, jump up and down and carry on and you're saying Bob does his, you know, business and, and you know, yeah. It's it's a it's a circus and and what did Kathy do? She actually sat down on the track, put her head in her hands, and I remember thinking that I was just near the finish line, thinking, "Come on, Kathy, you know, come on." It seemed like ages. It was probably thirty seconds, but it seemed like minutes. And uh, and I was with Chris Wardlaw, the the head coach, and yeah, we we're saying, "Come on, come on, Kathy, get moving," you know. Yeah. And uh, and I think it was just that overwhelming sense of relief uh, that she had, and so you know. Th- th- it was sort of my, a great privilege for me, obviously. I remember we were sitting down and, and drug testing and, you know, and I remember thinking, you know, the country's going crazy because of this little girl next to me. You know, I mean, everyone's, you know, celebrating and so on. And here we are, you know, talking about where we're going to go on our holiday. And, and you know, <laughs> you know, it was just, it was just, uh, and I, I simply remember thinking this is a weird situation, you know. And uh, yeah, but uh, you know, again, I mean, that, that's what happens when you, you know, when you work with uh, with people. You're, you're incredibly privileged. Um, you know, you have to, to earn the right things, to, to so. be there, but you are incredibly privileged to to get to know people and to be with people at times when you know the, 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 there's amazing things happening. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but uh, but she yeah she coped with pressure better than anyone I've ever come. Across. And is that something that like how you mentioned she would switch off like almost compartmentalize? Um, to get herself in the zone. Was that something she practiced, or was that something she just dealt with and adapted along her way, her career? Yeah, I, I think. She, yeah, I think she realised that was a, that was the only way she could really uh, really cope. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, she did it so well. I mean, uh, yeah, incredibly proud of her. She's uh, an amazing, amazing person. Continues to be. Does some great work with the indigenous communities and so on. And she's very, she's a very shy person. You know, she's not someone. You know, you never see her around. You know, she's not on. You know, she's probably not on Instagram or she's not. On, you know, sort of. Uh, uh, you know, sort the sort the limelight. In fact, the opposite. She's just sort the the quiet life and, and just a, a genuinely uh, good person. And uh, yeah, I felt very privileged to have uh, been able to spend that time. And and, and in fact, even for years earlier in, in Atlanta we had a similar uh, quite a funny experience together and uh, we caught up a while ago and had a good laugh about it about it all and uh, had a bit of a reminisce about about things that yeah yeah I was very lucky with yeah, it. and you do you know you get to you get to work with so many amazing amazing people and uh, I guess the thing is that you realize that you know you have these images of people and, and you know of, of these superstars and so on and what you realize and you know it's in retrospect it's perfectly obvious is that you know they're all just human beings you know they've mm. all got the same uh, the same um, you know frailties and, and insecurities and, and issues that we all have um, mm. and uh, the same challenges and and really you know that I guess the trick to dealing with them is to, is to uh, is to treat them as human beings and not as you know superstars and uh, and so on and uh, um, yeah if you get to do that you're uh, yeah you're very lucky yeah absolutely. Yeah, and, and that's a that's a good thing for developing, whether it be physios or or S and Cs to to listen to, isn't it? To deal with the person first rather than um, the the athlete in that sense. Yeah, because so they have plenty of people. Yeah, they have plenty of people who you know sort of starstruck and you know want to want to be friendly with them for you know all sorts of reasons and so on. But you know when you're working with someone day to day, you know it's just a great opportunity to to develop that sort of relationship and that uh, and that friendship uh, just as a you know everyday sort of a human being. Because that's what they that's what they want. You know they don't you know they they've got thousands of fans out there you know but uh, a lot of these athletes that don't really have many true true friends and people that they can talk to uh, you know and, and that's what you know 
some of the, 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 the people I work with, whether it be physios or, or S&C guys and so on, I mean, are, are just so good at, at, uh, mm. at that sort of uh, relationship with, uh, with the players and, uh, and so on. And, uh, you know, Darren Burgess is a classic example, who, you know, as well as uh, someone I've worked with a lot, and most of your listeners would know, uh, know who Burjo is, a uh, high-performance manager now at, at Melbourne, formerly with me at the Socceroos and at Liverpool, and since then he's been at Arsenal and Port Adelaide. But, you know, he's just got... Uh, Got this knack of, of developing relationships with uh, with the people he works with, and uh, and they want to you know they want to work for him. You know they want to do what uh, what you know what he wants them to do, and he'll he'll explain to them why. And uh, but just it's it's that uh, that those people skills that are underrated. You know we can all have all the knowledge in the world, and uh, it's the same with physios. You know I mean you can be the best physio in the world, have the best techniques and so on, but the important thing is your relations. You know your relationship and your ability to to uh, communicate and to uh, and to talk to these. Uh, to these athletes, just on a you know, as normal human beings, and uh, yeah, I think they appreciate that, and that that's what makes it uh, such a good relationship. Yeah, and do you think that's um, one of the strong skill sets that you had from early days? Like you mentioned, the academic side wasn't your huge interest, but the being involved <laughs> in sporting clubs and that side was something you you were passionate about, and and yeah, you know, look, I think it helps. If, yeah, I think it helps if you can sort of talk sport and uh, so on. But you know, as I said, also you you need to be able to you know talk about other things. You know, plenty of people want to talk sport to those people, but they might want to talk about you know their their relationship or their or their little baby or their uh, you know the house they're buying or, or you know something I mean uh, you know I, I remember I've you know I've been giving house buying advice <laughs> all sorts yeah. of things to different people along the uh, along the way you know God knows I wasn't very qualified for it but uh, you know they they do uh, and it is funny because people you know I think a lot of the athletes sort of uh, respect you as uh, you know, as someone, you know, whether you're a doctor or some sort of health professional, you know, you, you do get that level of respect and people look to you for advice. And so, you you know, you can be very influential with uh, with these people, you know. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the cricketers used to come up to me all the time and ask me questions about, you know, they assume that you know everything, you know. And I would I'd always be saying, I had no idea, you know. They'd, they'd watch some, uh, Dave Warner was a classic, you know, he'd watch some National yeah. Geographic video and he'd, you know, breakfast the next morning and say, now, Doc, you know, what about this? <laughs> you know, assume that I, you know, I knew everything, but uh, you know, it is nice to have those sort of relationships. Absolutely, absolutely. And and what do you see changing in the future in terms of sports medicine? What do you think is in store for the future sports, sports medicine? Oh, Docs, physios, you know, the whole side. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I think there are, um, from a medical point of view, uh, I think uh, both in sports medicine and medicine generally, you know, I think we're moving away from uh, from the model of, of, of medicine where um, it's all very much, uh, you know, medications and surgery and, and and so on, and and, uh, and I think this has happened in physio as well. And the importance of exercise, I think, is uh, uh, has really sort of changed. I mean, we, you know, we've gone in, in the time I've been in sports medicine, and, and interestingly, even the term sports physician, we're now called a sport and exercise medicine physician. You know, so that's yeah. that's changed over the, the period of time, and that and that really reflects the uh, the, the changes in uh, in sports medicine. I think to to become very much uh, focused on on things like medicine and nutrition and and so on, and uh, Rather than just uh, you know treating injuries with uh, with medications or surgery, and I think that's a general sort of thing in uh, in medicine. I'd like to think it's heading uh, it's heading that way. Um, I think um, there's always you know challenges in in sports medicine and sports science, and it's that it's getting the mix right between the, between the science and the and the sort of uh, you know I guess human element to it all. 
Um, yeah, the art of it. And, yep. uh, yeah, the science and art, you know, and medicine is, is both a science and an art and, and sports medicine in particular, I think. So, you know, I think that, that's always a challenge. Uh, the science is important. We've got to keep doing the science. We've got to keep showing what works and what doesn't work. But, you know, as, as, as you and, and your listeners would know, it's, it's very hard to do good science in elite sport. I mean, uh, you know, you can't, you can't do randomized controlled trials at, uh, you know, in no. professional sporting teams, you know, as much as we'd love to. And, um, so, you know, so the, the problem is that all the, the, the research, all the science is done on non-elite sport. Um, and uh, can you then extrapolate that to, uh, to elite sport? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes uh, they're different animals and uh, it's not that, uh, that relevant. So there's a lot of challenges uh, out there. Um, but it's an exciting uh, time and it's a great career. I mean, I feel incredibly privileged to have been able to combine my, my passion and my career. I mean, not many people get to do that, you know. And, uh, you know, I can honestly say I've, I've, you know, woken up every morning of my working life and looking forward to go to work, you know. Well, again, you know, if you can get to, you know, get to my age and, and say that, you know, you're incredibly, uh, incredibly lucky. And um, I guess my, my timing was good, you know, in that uh, I sort of, finished medicine and started my medical career just as sort of sports medicine was emerging so I could be part of that sort of initial wave of people if you like you know we, we all sort of worked together to get sports medicine recognised especially through the college and, and so on so that was an exciting time and uh, there are probably opportunities that our generation had that are, that are more difficult in the in the future but um, uh, you know I always used to say you know oh yeah you know I was just really lucky with my timing but as you know my family pointed out to me yeah but I also worked pretty hard <laughs> and yeah. um you know, I would, yeah, you know, it's, and, you know, every night, I mean, I would never, I've never watched a TV show in my life, I don't think, other than sport. You know, after dinner at night, I would just go and, and work for two or three hours. You know, I'd be reading something or writing or, or doing something uh, work-wise. And, um, and I guess, you know, I probably didn't have the work-life balance as good as I, as I could, but, um, you know, it, it's, uh, you've got to have that passion. And, yeah, you know, uh, I, I said before I wasn't really academic when I was a medical student, and I'm not a natural academic. But I became, uh, you know, sort of academic because because I was interested in things and passionate about things. And if you're really so interested, you yeah, you you know, you see a patient that day with you know Achilles tendon problem, so you want to go home at night and read about Achilles tendon and and things like that. You know, which I never did when I was a you know medical student when you sort of had to do it for an exam or something. So. Yeah, you know, yeah, you're, yeah. you're doing things because you're interested and, and so on. And uh, my wife always says if she, she knew I was going to become a workaholic, she'd never have married me. But uh, anyway, she, she knew me when I was a pretty lazy uh, uh, medical student. But uh, anyway, we survived. But, um, yeah, you know, you do, you do when, when you, you know, passionate about something, you're interested in something, then, then learning and working is, is not, a, not a chore. You know, it's something that you, know, you want to, you can't wait to get home and read stuff and, and you know, look up stuff and, uh, and so on. So, uh, yeah, that's been what that's the way my, my career's gone. Yeah, I think that's a great way of, um, that's like a great takeaway, isn't it, for just to better your, your craft in whatever you do, is it's quite deliberate. Like if there's an area there that you, you get a question asked by, like a Dave Warner on a topic that you haven't, you're not familiar <laughs> with, <laughs> being humble enough to say, look, I don't know, but he probably backs you in to find out the answer in that sense and that builds yeah. up a good relationship with your athletes. And um, I think Is that I how think you've the other... sort of gone about developing yourself? Yeah, is it through... yeah I think so, yeah. Yeah, try and find out more and so on. I think... I think the other the other thing Jack, is um, is being prepared to go out of your comfort zone a bit. Um, mm. You know, it's it's very easy to uh, you know. I remember thinking, you know, when I was at Melbourne, way you know, way back in the, in the eighties, you know, and I was relatively young at the time. You know, I could have you know stayed in that job, you know, and done 
you know, done their fellas was then and uh, and so on. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I wanted to explore opportunities. You know, I then went and did the the Australian athletics team job for you know ten years and did some Olympics and things like that. And then and then um, you know, I uh, I did that and then took some time out when the kids were uh, were teenagers and so on. And then I went back and uh, and did the Socceroos uh, for four years leading up to the, the 2010 World Cup. And then I got this offer from Liverpool. Um, it came out of the blue, really. Um, I got, a, got an approach to uh, Liverpool was setting up a new... They were changing their medical system, though. Uh, oh, yeah, um, heard about this. Revamp. Yeah, so. yeah, so they they'd say they created this position called head of sports medicine and sports science, which had never sort of existed before at a Premier League club and so on. And, and I was approached, and, and initially, to be honest, I sort of said, no, look, you know, it didn't really suit family-wise. Our youngest son was still at school another year or two. And we'd always sort of talked about maybe... You know, going back to England and doing a Premier League job, you know, when the kids had uh, grown up, but it just came, you know, sort of 18 months too early or two years too early. And so initially I said no, but they're very uh, persistent. And um, well, I guess eventually, you know, I, I sort of thought, well, you know, yeah, I could stay in my comfort zone, or but this is a, a massive challenge, you know, uh, taking on a, a new job in, in a very you know, traditional environment like the, like the Premier League, um, leaving my family. Um, you know, they, they came over for holidays and things, but that was, uh, you know, that wasn't easy. And, mm. uh, you know, basically living, you know, living by myself in, um, in Liverpool, uh, for, for that time. So, but I, you know, I thought, nah, look, you know, this is a, an amazing opportunity and, and an enormous challenge. And so I, uh, I sort of got out of my comfort zone and, uh, and went for it. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And it was a fantastic experience. You know, I was able to get a couple of my soccerers colleagues and, uh, Dan Burgess and, and Phil Coles to come with me. And, uh, I wasn't totally, uh, on my own. And, um, yeah, it was a great, uh, a great challenge there. So, you know, I think sometimes you've just got to, uh, got to go out of your comfort zone a little bit and, uh, and, uh, challenge yourself. And, uh, yeah. You know, it's uh, that way. Yeah, it's how you're progressing your career, I guess. Absolutely. And so that that role that that had a the the sports medicine title makes sense, but the the fact that it had the science component to it as well is that a GPS? Yeah. Like, what was the sports science component to that to that role, and, and what would that look like on the daily? basis for you yeah well uh i mean again it was was really something that uh that burjo ran um so yeah. uh i just oversaw the the whole program and uh and basically i got him in uh because i i'd worked with him at the socceroos and we had a good relationship and i also admired what uh what he did and um and look to to be honest at the time uh you know, this is 2010. I mean, the Premier League was was way behind the AFL in uh, in what they were doing and things, as you said, things like GPS, uh, just in monitoring in in general. They just didn't mm. uh, just didn't do it. And uh, is it that, was not is that a lot why of, your your approach. Well, I think so. Yeah, Australia I think it was part. Of, yeah, I think so. Yeah, both in in medicine and, and sports science. Yeah, I think there was a feeling out there that because apparently they they looked for someone in England to do this to do this role and uh, and couldn't find anyone. So. Uh, in fact, oh. the two the two people who were shortlisted were actually both Australians. So interestingly enough, so uh, um, yeah, so I think that uh, um, and there, you know there were a few uh, English sports scientists at the time uh, at Man United and a couple of other places who were staying Chelsea, who were starting to sort of uh, ramp things up a little bit. But um, yeah, certainly uh, overall, the, the Premier League at that stage was uh, was not very uh, strong in, in science. You know, and I think partly because the, the managers were not you know, very sort of science oriented. You know, they were mainly traditional English football managers who you know grown up and you know did things their way. You know, the way when they played, Definitely. and that's the way we'll do it yeah. now. And uh, things hadn't changed, and it, it took a bit of an influx of 
of some of the uh, the foreign manager, the European managers, to come in. I think to help drive this sort of a push towards sports science. Um, that has certainly helped. And I think now, I mean, I think the the, the Premier League is is right up there with with everyone now. I think in that ten year period, they've uh, you know they've shot That's ahead in, in leaps and bounds. And and you know, I think Darren's influence, you know, was quite significant in that. And as I said, there were there were Tony Strudwick at Man United and, and a few others who were who were very good as well. And uh, now it's yeah, it's it's a, it's a good standard all round. So um, yeah, that was that was really interesting. That uh, and, and you know, initially we were told when we got there that um, oh no, you can't do that. No, the players won't do that. No, oh, no, you can't. Uh, you know, mm. so we we did this uh, injury prevention session in the uh, that a big sort of indoor football area, and we would do these uh, before training every day. We'd do these injury uh, prevention sessions. You know, you'd rotate around. You know, five minutes here, five minutes there, do a bit of proprioception, a bit of uh, you know, etc. etc. And um, I remember Joe Cole who was a uh, England player who just joined Liverpool from Chelsea and uh, we're standing there watching he must have been injured or something and uh, we're standing there watching the uh, the prevention session he said to me doc you know you can never do this at Chelsea so what do you mean he said oh no players wouldn't let you you know the players were so powerful that uh, that they you know they controlled things if they didn't like something then it didn't happen and which was a real shock to, coming from an AFL and, uh, and yeah, so background you know yeah you know you did what you were told and you know hopefully you were explained it was explained to you but even if it was wasn't you know you just did it because that's what you did but totally different uh, culture and people said to us oh you'll never you know you'll never get the Liverpool players who are you know big stars and so on to uh, but you know they all bought into it and uh, to their credit and, and to Darren's credit that uh, that he uh, he got them to uh, to buy in and that's a that's an art in itself for getting people to Absolutely. buy into your program and as you know as you would know and any, anyone in the in the uh, in the AFL industry for instance would know and um, you know I remember uh, when Darren went back to uh, to Port Adelaide after his after his Liverpool uh, sojourn you know he rang me at one stage he said oh look it's so nice you know people it's don't question you know you, you tell them to do something and they don't you know you get ready for all the complaints and the questions and so on. And, I just do it, <laughs> you know. So we've got a good culture like that. But you know, to to the players' credit at Liverpool and to Darren's credit, uh, they they did adopt that. So yeah, it was a really interesting time and and uh, very different and challenges and uh, so on. But uh, yeah, experience uh, that I'll, I'll never. Uh, forget and never regret certainly absolutely and so is there now more english sports scientists or what we've known as yeah science? yeah yes yeah yeah i think it's yeah i think it's uh it's good you know, nowadays and, and you know england's always been i mean uk's always had really good sports science school you know schools you know luffer and and uh and and uh john moore's at uh at, at liverpool and so on there's some you know great uh uh sports science universities and so on it just they just hadn't really been accepted by by the football community and uh you know, when we arrived at Liverpool, uh, you know, here was the Liverpool Football Club, and, and literally down the road is John Moore's University, which is arguably one of the top sports science. Uh, and and there was no link, you know, so we created a link between yeah. uh, between the university and uh, and the football club, which you know still exists, and which has been beneficial for for both sides. So you know, things like that just hadn't happened, and uh, and there's been a you know huge flurry of activity in the last ten years. And as I said, I think they're they're fine these days. But it was uh, yeah, it was interesting to to walk into that from having you know having come from Socceroos, AFL, etc. You know, where we that culture was already ingrained, and uh, yeah, so it was a challenge to to bring it into English football. And and Darren and his colleagues, I think, did a great job of doing that. Yeah, fantastic. Oh, we'll, we'll start to wrap you up, and I don't want to um, don't want to take too much of your time, but it's been amazing um, sharing your experiences and, and these stories as well. It's uh, fascinating to, to listen to all the things you've experienced over your, over your journey. Um, what are you excited about for, for 2021? What's on the horizon for you, Peter? Well, um, I'm involved with three sporting teams uh, this year, and uh, I'm hopeful that uh, at least one, if not more, will uh, will do well. So I have a role at Melbourne Football Club. 
uh, yep. Darren sort of got me uh, got me oh, involved cool. there. Um, I think nah. he figured that. Uh, I think he figured I took him, you know, twenty thousand kilometres to Liverpool. He could take me twenty <laughs> kilometres to Melbourne. So I couldn't really argue with that. So yeah. I'm uh, I'm doing a little bit of work there, just a day a week there, and uh, and that's been terrific. They've got a fantastic uh, uh, medical fitness sort of group there. That's a real pleasure to uh, to work with. So uh, that's good. And and I have uh, still my Uni Blues involvement. Um, yep. which is my uh, sort of my, my real passion. It's my 50th season at Uni Blues and uh, wow. we're the, uh, we're the defending 50th. Uh, 50th, yeah. yeah. Amazing. I, mean, I know, it's, it's sad, isn't it? My kids keep saying, when am I going to leave university? But uh, I say, no, probably never. Um, but uh, <laughs> an amazing club. You know, like many, you know, I'm not saying that they're, they're you know, anything different from anyone else, but they're an amazing, you know, community sport is what I love. You know, I think that's actually my favourite level of sport, sort of what I'd say high-level amateur sport. So, you know, A-grade amateur footy, Vaffa, I'm yep. also involved with it. Yeah, Vaffa. Um, it's a great competition and they're a great bunch of, uh, of guys. And, uh, you know, I love heading down there. I'm down there every Tuesday and Thursday night and Saturdays and, and I love wow. it. You know, it's, a, it's not a chore at all. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure. And, uh, yeah, we won uh, the last flag, which was 2019. And, you know, you never know. We always hope to, to do it again. And then I'm also involved with the Premier League hockey team. My, my kids finish up playing hockey for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, and, um, so I still help uh, help sort of coach and, and organise uh, one of the Premier League hockey clubs are, are also doing well. So, you know, this is a frustrating thing. We're in lockdown at the moment and I've had a weekend where I didn't have any uh, community sport. I was just able to watch the Melbourne game. But, uh, yeah, I really miss that uh, that that involvement in, the, in community sport. And this being part of a community, I think communities are so important, you know, especially for young people to be part of a of a community and, and sporting clubs are, 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 are to the forefront there and uh, you know we need to get back to playing uh, playing community sport as soon as we, we possibly can and I'm hoping that'll be the next week or two so it'll be, uh, yeah. that'll be great so that's yeah that's what I really enjoy um, yep. my other passion as we we talked about before is, is getting people to eat better and uh, mm-hmm. and trying to knock this diabetes thing on the head so my Defeat Diabetes app and uh, the campaign is, is the other sort of uh, passion I have uh, in life so between, uh, between all of that and a few other little bits and pieces along the way I'm, uh, I keep pretty busy and uh, yeah, I'm still loving what I do. I still, you know, still enjoy every, uh, everything that I do and um, yeah, hopefully I'm of some use to, uh, to some of these organisations as well. Absolutely. Well, it's been um, inspiring to hear yeah, the energy in your voice all throughout the last sort of 45 minutes uh, sharing your stories, mate. Thank you so much for jumping on. Uh, my pleasure, Jack. It was really uh, enjoyed chatting. Hopefully people got their notebooks out and wrote down all your gems. There's been plenty <laughs> there. Sure I've, about I've, that. I've quickly written down some notes, so I'll make sure I share mine. But yeah, thank you very much, Peter, for jumping on and um, look forward to uh, catching up in the flesh at some time in the future. Thanks, mate. Cheers, Peter. Cheers. Well, thank you for listening, guys. Make sure if you uh, enjoyed the show to subscribe to our channel. Um, you can also subscribe Subscribe to our website, preparelikeapro.com, where you'll get uh, lots of free content, uh, including a four-week strength and conditioning program. And this IGTV, for those that tuned in a little bit late, will be sitting on Instagram, so you can tune back and listen to Peter from the very beginning. Thanks again for listening in. Uh, Till next time. Cheers, guys.